You're listening to The HR Bartender Show, a casual place to talk about all things work. Here's where you get practical advice about how to be a better employee, manager, and leader in today's workplace. So grab your favorite beverage, pull up a stool, and join us in the conversation. The bar is always open. Now, here's your host, Charlene Lauby. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Charlene Lauby, author of the blog, HR Bartender. Before we get started today, I want to take a moment to thank our founding sponsor, Ultimate Kronos Group, also known as UKG. To be a powerfully productive business, you need powerfully happy people. Two leaders in workforce management and HR have joined forces to become UKG, Ultimate Kronos Group. With comprehensive HR solutions, they'll help you create more meaningful connections within your workforce that will make your people smile. UKG, our purpose is people. In this first season of the HR Bartender Show, we're talking about the future of work. And with me is Jim Stroud to talk about the future of talent acquisition. Jim is the Vice President of Marketing for Proactive Talent, a recruitment strategy consulting and staffing company that specializes in recruiting optimization. He's also a blogger, writer, and podcaster, helping organizations and job seekers find better ways to connect. Jim is the author of five, yes, that's five books, and you can learn more about him at jimstroud.com. When he's not online, he loves spending time with his family and searching for the best chocolate chip cookie. And Jim, before we actually get into some, you know, like work-related stuff, I need to know the best chocolate chip cookie out there. Oh, that's that's difficult because there's so many that I like. I think my favorite right now is the Great American Cookie Company, which I get at the uh, the mall when I would go to the mall frequently. Uh, it's been a while since I've been there, but they have really great cookies. I might have to see if they sell online. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Now, it's been a while since you and I have seen one another. Yeah, I, yeah. Back, right. I remember the first time we met in real life. It was in at SourceCon. Mm. So tell me, how are you doing? How's your family None of us are getting out and interacting as much as we would like to. So I just want to kind of say hello and how are you doing? I appreciate that. I am uh, doing fine. Family's doing well. No COVID disasters over here. Knock on wood. It's just been interesting. From a working perspective, I've worked from home for so many years. So when things were locking down, it was still business as usual for me. My family was like, understandably was concerned about how things were panning out and what was going to happen next. But I think, I think we've gone through the worst of it. Although they're, I think they're trying to signal a, a second lockdown. Hopefully that won't be the case. But as of now, everything is good. We have plenty of toilet paper stocked up in case it goes south. It's interesting. At the time we're recording this, I'm reading headlines about people stocking up on toilet paper again. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. You never know. Just it's good to always have, you know, some spare toilet paper around the house. I think that that's <laughs> one of the lessons that we're we're learning from this. Most definitely. Most definitely. You touched upon what's kind of happening right now with recruiting and what's going on with the economy. And regardless of what, maybe it's just me, but regardless of what's happening in terms of like what the unemployment numbers are, what's going on with the economy, finding the best talent continues to be a business priority. And that really starts with sourcing. You know, if you think back on how you and I met, we had a conversation about sourcing. And I'm not 
sure everyone realizes how complex the sourcing function hmm. is. So I was wondering for those people who are listening in, can you talk a little bit about the art and science of sourcing? Sure. Usually when people hear sourcing in our circles, the novices, they think it's all about creating the, just the, the right Boolean search in Google to make resumes magically appear. And that's certainly a component of it. But Sourcing, in my opinion, is all about finding qualified, interested, and available candidates that your client can afford to hire. I think people really <laughs> leave off the last bit about finding the candidates that your client can afford to hire. That bit is especially important because it means that you're not only a researcher good at searching the net, but it also means that you are a bit of a strategist as well. You know what the talent market is nationally and for your location. You know what the hiring trends of your client is. You know your client's competitors and where they tend to hire from. You know what the average salary is for the role that you're looking for and your and what your rivals are offering, even in terms of benefits, so that when you present a candidate from a rival organization, you'll already know how to uh, deliver a sales pitch to them that's appealing to them. Uh, you know the tools being used by your client's competitors and what Someone who works at company X with a certain job title is is likely to know. So you'll know right off the top if they, whether or not they'll be a compelling candidate or not. Based on all that, you know, the best places to find talent within the budget of your client. Sourcers are more of a are also a bit of a salesperson because they have to be able to intrigue a prospect to learn more about a new job, even when they may be perfectly fine where they are. They also have to convince the client, whether that's the, the recruiter or a hiring manager directly that the strategy they're using to find these candidates uh, will give them the best possible outcome so that they're not spinning their wheels from the very beginning. Such being the case, when I would present a candidate based on a certain type of strategy, then the recruiter or the hiring manager will interview them quickly before they get away. I think a lot of times people take for granted how much strategy and thought leadership goes into putting together a sourcing strategy that works from the beginning. I think a lot of times people look at sourcers as order takers and those who look at their sources as order takers and treat them as such do themselves a, a disservice. And, you know, one of the big takeaways for me is that sourcing is very strategic in the organization. And speaking of strategy and sourcing strategy, some HR departments have dedicated sourcers within their talent acquisition function. And in other companies, talent acquisition professionals do their own sourcing. Mm. What are the pros and cons to each strategy? Should companies, how would a company know whether they should have dedicated sourcers and talent acquisition professionals or a blend, you know, somebody who does both? I think the pros and cons are both centered around time. Talent acquisition leaders have more to do than source, so they're limited if they do their own sourcing. They cannot develop pipeline strategies or, or speak to as many prospects as they would like because they have so much to do. Plus, sourcers could be doing so much extra stuff that will pay off dividends on down the road. Take, for example, they could be creating a, a competitive intelligence database, meaning that when they talk to so many candidates from so many companies, they can see the trends and they'll know from those trends, the best sales pitches to give to candidates from a certain company. So for example, if I know that people at company X really hate the blue carpeting at their office, back when they would go to an office, then I would leave a note in the ATS or when I talk to the recruiter 
I would say, okay, when you talk to this particular candidate, because they come from company X, where they really hate the blue carpeting, I really want you to stress how great and wonderful and plush our red carpeting is. That's the kind of information that sources can be developing. But of course, TA leaders would, would have time to that level of, of detail. Sources could also be doing job title research, which is where sources can, in a sense, pre-qualify talent. So they can say, for example, a hiring manager, you want a software developer. And we call our software developers programmer twos. Over at company Z, they call them programmer one. And they use the same tools that we use over at company Z. They also have this type of experience at company Z. So hiring manager, recruiter, whoever the client is, if I present someone to you from this company with this job title, then pretty much they're in line with what you want for this particular role that I'm recruiting for. A uh, sourcer can take the time to develop that kind of intelligence, which again will pay dividends on down the road. Then they also could be doing things like uh, what I call time travel sourcing. So if, say, you have a need for a senior software engineer and they have, and this requirement is that they should have seven years worth of experience, and you know that people who have seven years plus worth of experience, and especially with certain tools, they're hard to find because a lot of times these types of folks don't put all the information in their LinkedIn profile because they're tired of recruiters inundating them with requests. Well, then sources could take the time to say, let me do a Google search. And in Google search, you can do a date range on your search. And let's say, let's look for people who were maybe on their way to being a senior software engineer. Maybe look for junior software engineers from five years back and then reach out to them and say, hey, what have you done recently? And even though at uh, the time of that resume, they have five years experience, but since a couple of years have passed since then, they may be qualified now. So sources can be searching the internet for older resumes and then updating them. And then also going inside of the ATS for old resumes that way as well. So these are type of things that sources could be doing. Uh, I'm a big proponent of having your own sourcing team to do this type of thing. TA leaders, even recruiters uh, who do their own sourcing, it, it does them a disservice overall, I think, uh, because they have many things to do. And a sourcer can be dedicated to do all this kind of stuff. And if they're doing projects like this, it'll pay off dividends on down the road. I know in my career, I've never had, I had to do my own sourcing. Just as you were describing all of the things that sourcers can do, you know, I think back on the searches that I've done in my career and go, oh my gosh, I would have loved <laughs> to have someone doing that for me so that I could spend my time on other things. Yeah, it would have reduced your time to fill too. I know that's that's always a, a lovely thing <laughs> that clients want to hear how a quick fill on a rec. The other piece of the conversation is mm -hmm. we're talking about saving time. It made me realize how much technology needs to be a part of the process. It can play a huge role in helping organizations find talent. Mm -hmm. I have to admit, I'm also amazed at the number of companies that do not have a recruiting technology solution. <laughs> yeah. In your experience, because I know you have a strong tech background, what are a couple of things that companies can look for when they want to make an investment in a recruiting technology solution? Yeah, great question. We get actually at Proactive Talent, we get a lot 
<laughs> of questions about that very thing. So much so we created this uh, this free tool for comparing different recruitment solutions. And I'll send you the link to share of your network. Maybe you can include it in the uh, description there if you like. But for now, I probably say I would advise companies to consider things like uh, how well the technology tracks user activity. That's important. Uh, how well it tracks traffic sources, tracks trends in the data. Is the data hosted on a secure cloud? Does it have an open API to allow partners to develop complementary solutions uh, and so on? It, it really depends on what they're buying, whether that's an ATS, a CRM or whatever. But as I said, we have a free tool that people can download that help them sort that out. And I'll, I'll be sure to send a link out to you. Great. And we'll be sure to put that in the show notes so that listeners have access to it. Cool. One of the challenges, and I'm sure you're hearing about it too, mm. I'm getting lot of HR pros come to me and say, we want to make sure we're recruiting a diverse workforce. Yep. What kinds of things should organizations be focused on right now to make sure that they are bringing diversity into the workplace? Well, I'll speak from a sourcing perspective because it's on my mind now from the previous questions. I would say target companies with diversity and inclusion officers, because if they, ha- if they have diversity and inclusion officers, then they've already created or, or initiated some initiatives to uh, attract diverse talent in their ranks. So if a company has DNI officers, a chance that they may have more diversity in their ranks as opposed to companies that do not have DNI officers. Uh, take advantage of, of their work <laughs> when you're targeting companies to source from. You can also do a search on Google or, or DuckDuckGo, which is my favorite search engine. You can do a search on, say, female-friendly companies. And if you do a search on female-friendly companies, you're going to see in the search results lots of companies that may have been awarded or have been cited uh, on a blog post or an article about their uh, initiative to recruit more women. So if you have an initiative to recruit more women, then targeting those companies may be advantageous for you. Same thing for searching on autism-friendly companies or doing a search on what I call best for companies. So if you do a search on best companies for the blind, you'll see companies that have a uh, sweet spot or well, sweet spot. <laughs> they have special initiatives for uh, hiring people who are visually impaired or best companies for deaf workers. You'll find companies like that as well. Uh, of course, you can always advertise in different diversity-related job boards. But that's a little tricky with some diverse demographics, especially if they are disabled, because they tend not to reveal that they are disabled because they are very concerned about discrimination. But there are ways to still source them, even though they don't necessarily admit being disabled uh, or or rather reveal being disabled. So one way to find people like this is to look at different uh, resources that they would be sensitive to. So for example, if I wanted to find visually impaired software testers, and they are out there, what I would do is I would go to, I forget the actual association, but it's something for the blind. There are different associations for the blind, but the resource I'm thinking of is that there are magazines that are written in Braille. And there are computer magazines that are written in Braille. 
uh, Wired Magazine being one, PC Mag being another. I forget, there, there are a couple of others that uh, I don't remember right off, but I know for sure Wired and PC Mag. So if I put in advertising in a Braille edition of Wired Magazine or a Braille edition of PC Mag, chances are I'm going to find someone who has an interest in technology who happens to be visually impaired. So I would do things like that. And then I also would, from a TA perspective, pay close attention to census data. I've seen a lot of companies virtue signal saying that I want to have 50% diverse workforce, 50% minority and 50% women in my workforce by 2025 or something like that, right? And we're going to have half of our laboratory are going to be female scientists and half my laboratory is going to be Asian or, or Hispanic or whatever. They boast all of these things they want to do. But if you look at the census data, you can say, okay, according to the U.S. census data, there are not as many people in this demographic that have jobs in the area that we are recruiting from. So you can say that I want to have half of my laboratory filled with female scientists, but a TA leader can say, let's go to the census research and we see that there are not that many women in STEM jobs in the whole country or the whole world. So to have, it's great to have that kind of goal, but it's more realistic to say, hey, we'll be lucky to get so many in our organization, especially if we're competing with the rest of the world who also have similar diverse uh, diversity initiatives. So uh, having a bit of realism, a reality chat <laughs> in the beginning of all that will save a lot of people a lot of different headaches in that regard, I think. Speaking of a reality check, that kind of leads us to our last question together. Mm. Um, we have no idea what next year is going to bring. You know, we started out 2020 talking about unemployment rates being historically low, everyone searching for the same competitive talent landscape. Mm -hmm. If companies can only do one thing in 2021 to set their talent acquisition function up for success, what should that be? I will offer up a controversial response. <laughs> I would say the best thing they can do is to figure out the fairest way to pay their remote workers. Facebook is working on that right now, actually. They said that as of January 2021, that they're going to pay you based on location. On one hand, somewhat normal because people have been doing it all along. But on the other hand, it opens them up for a lot of controversy and debate. For example, let's say I'm a software engineer in California. I'm getting paid $225. And then my pal who also works for Facebook, who's a software engineer in Atlanta, and he's making $175. And so they're going to say, hey, how come I'm getting paid less uh, as you are in California and we're both working remote? Since I'm remote, I could be anywhere in the world. What does it matter that you're getting paid more than I am or we're doing exactly the same thing? So you have that. And then you have also this issue of, okay, you're paying people in this one city. The majority of the population is African-American. And in California, in that city, the majority of the people there are white. So you're paying white people more than black people. That's going <laughs> to that's gonna be a can of worms right there. I think companies should pay close attention to Facebook. They have the money to fight. They do the legal battles to see what will happen. 
Twitter is looking at them. Google's looking at them. They haven't made such a decree yet on their workforce. Everybody's sort of looking what happened with Facebook in that regard. I think that is a huge can of worms. It's going to erupt in January when this thing is enacted. And either they will stick with it and make it work, or they'll say, oh, no, we didn't we didn't mean that. <laughs> and it'll stop. But either way, whether they can master it or not, it brings up a lot of questions about fairness and pay. And we know that there's a relationship between pay and recruiting. Oh, yeah. There's definitely a relationship between those two factors. And if you want to, and that kind of brings us back to where we started our conversation, if you want to bring the best talent into the organization, pay and perks and benefits all have to be considered as well. So when we're thinking about the future of the function, we're not just talking about the mechanics of hiring people, but we're talking about the tools that recruiters have in order to make that hire. Oh, yeah. That's also another interesting perspective on it as well, if I may offer this one up too. There's a lot of talk about, uh, of course, about diversity. We're very sensitive to that here in the States. And there's also companies wanting to make money because they're in business to make money and, and to protect shareholder value. So if everyone is working online and there are people in, say, the Philippines or India or Croatia or wherever, and they can do the same software work, and they can do it cheaper in their work in, and because of their location. I can pretty much outsource it virtually to other countries based on their demographic. They meet a certain diversity initiative that I'm trying to hit and I can pay them cheaper. That is something companies may look at from a bottom line perspective. I think that could also backfire from a PR perspective. If you want to give jobs outside of the country and you have people here in the country that can do the work, but that's the classic H-1B visa war for talent argument. You know, I think it's it's going from the classic, we need to import more workers uh, because we just need them. And some would say, no, you just want cheap labor. Well, that same argument is going to get transferred virtually to just, okay, we won't import any more workers. We'll just pay workers to stay where they are. And we'll pay them cheaper. It'll be a whole lot of money to them, but it won't be as much as we would pay if we have it here in America. So January is going to be really interesting, I think, around pay when Facebook's initiatives goes live. And not just Facebook. I mean, I think that there are going to be other companies out there who are going to use this same logic and they're going to have to balance out the goals that they are trying to accomplish Mm. with their talent strategy. Mm-hmm. It's a definitely a, a tight wire act because the pay, not only does it play with the bottom line, not only is, is it potentially a PR disaster uh, if it goes the wrong way, but it also affects your employer brand. What if you do this initiative where you're saving money by virtually outsourcing? Your brand could be why work for a company that doesn't put American citizens first? So they may hamper them from hiring certain people in America who, if they can't do the job, out, if they can't find someone outside of the country to do the job and they need someone in country for whatever reason, maybe they need to come into the office because of security or whatever reason. And you can't hire someone internal to your city 
because you have all this bad publicity of sending jobs outside of the country. So your employer brand gets dinged and it's hard for you to recruit long-term. So maybe you're getting uh, short-term profitability, but long-term, you won't be able to recruit anybody in your, in your country, which could present issues of that sort as well. Technology is great, but you still may need people inside, inside uh, your company to, look, to work face-to-face with people. So you may have other issues there too, if, if that makes sense. It does, because if you're a sourcer who can't source, then that becomes increasingly difficult for you to bring talent into the organization. You know, if, if people won't return your calls mm-hmm. and you're trying to engage or you're trying to find individuals, that all becomes a part of the talent equation. True, true. And if your people are all overseas and their nine o'clock morning calls are at three o'clock in the morning, your time, <laughs> that's, that's, that affects the company culture too. It does. It does. And, you know, you and I can spend a whole lot of time kind of going off on this tangent, but I know that your time is valuable. So I just want to give you a big thanks and cheers. Again, for those of you listening in, that was Jim Stroud of Proactive Talent sharing his insights on the future of talent acquisition with us. If you want to connect with him, and I know you do, be sure to check out his contact information in the show notes. That was a really great conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But don't go away just yet. In a moment, I'd like to share with you my takeaways from the discussion that we just had. To be a powerfully productive business, you need powerfully happy people. Two leaders in workforce management and HR have joined forces to become UKG, Ultimate Kronos Group. UKG creates comprehensive HR solutions designed to make employees happier and build more meaningful connections within your workforce. They've even done that for themselves, being recognized as one of the top places to work. And UKG's 12,000 employees help thousands of businesses build better cultures every day. When you're ready to make your people happier, UKG is ready to work for you. UKG, our purpose is people. Thanks again for listening to the HR Bartender Show. I thought this episode with Jim was particularly interesting because it really addresses that catch-22 that organizations can face when it comes to bringing talent into the organization. On one hand, we want to bring in the best people. We want to bring in the people who have the most skills, who have the most energy, who are going to contribute at a high level. And But we have to balance that with the fact that we don't always have a blank checkbook in order to do that. And as talent acquisition professionals, as human resources professionals, we have to work to get with the rest of the organization to put a strategy together that's going to allow us to bring the best talent into the organization that's going to meet our organizational goals, but do it in an effective and efficient way that's going to allow us to continue to attract and retain employees. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope that if you did enjoy this episode, you'll check out my conversation with Chris Mullen, where we spend a little bit more time talking about talent and technology. 
And until then, I look forward to seeing you next time. Thanks for listening to the HR Bartender Show. To make sure you don't miss a single episode, subscribe on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you go for the very best podcast productions. While you're there, we'd love it if you would rate the show and leave us a review. The HR Bartender Show is an ITM group presentation produced by HR Bartender and your host, Charlene Lauby. Remember, people, work responsibly.